Amen. Please turn in your Bibles to Zechariah chapter 12. If you're using the black Bibles, that can be found on page 798. Zechariah chapter 12, page 798. And as you're finding that passage, I want to kind of set the the course for us today by asking us a few questions. How does Jesus save us from our sins and from the wrath of God? How is Christ's redeeming work applied to us individually and personally? What evidence should a person give that he or she is saved? And one more What should I expect in life now that I am saved? I trust you see that these are all very important questions, right? They're they're all questions that have to do with eternal salvation. And these are questions that I pray will, will be clearly addressed in the sermon today. The title of the sermon is Salvation from the Lord. We're studying the through this book of the minor prophet Zechariah. Um, we're about 500 some years before Christ. And, and at that time in history, God spoke t- through Zechariah to the returned exiles in Jerusalem. And at the beginning of the book, they were, they were just kind of re- he was rallying them to, to restart the, the, the building of the temple. Now in this latter part of the book, the temple has been built. And now he's speaking to them in these two closing oracles. Last time we studied the first oracle, which was chapters 9 through 11. Now we're in the second oracle, which is 12 through 14. We're going to take two weeks to study that one. But what we're going to see in, in studying uh, the passage today is that God is telling his people here of a coming salvation. And as he tells them about this coming salvation, he's going to use language that speaks of horses and sieges and battles. But understand that God is not primarily speaking of a physical deliverance, but rather he's speaking of a salvation from their spiritual enemies of sin and evil, which will one day culminate in salvation from death itself. This prophecy from Zechariah is pointing God's people ahead to the eternal salvation that would come, and we'll see this in the text today, that would come through the promised son of David, the shepherd king. And as we go through this passage this morning, I want to seek to point out how the New Testament speaks of Christ fulfilling this text through his death, resurrection, and sending of the Holy Spirit. And so... Just to clarify that, um, in this last oracle, chapters 12 through 14, uh, the phrase, on that day, I believe is used 17 times. And we're going to see it several times even in our text this morning. On that day, on that day, on that day. And and that's a, a phrase that the prophets will use to speak of a future day when God's promises would be fulfilled. Right? That's what it means generally. Those could be promises of salvation. Those could be promises of judgment. But something that God has promised is going to be fulfilled on that day. Here in, in this last oracle, 
the prophets, the prophet Zechariah is speaking about um, the coming of Christ. And what we're going to have is, and, and this happens often with the prophets, is, you know, again, we're in the Old Covenant, right? This is before Jesus came. And so they're looking ahead to the, to the, the promise of the Messiah, the promise of the, the first coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, right? And so a, a text like this is going to be explaining what his coming will bring, what, what God will accomplish through his coming, and so when the prophets look ahead to that, um, what they're seeing and what they're describing is, is things that Christ will accomplish, some of which he'll accomplish at his first coming, right, when he came as a babe and lived and died in our place. Some of those will be things he accomplishes at his second coming, the return of Christ that we're still waiting for when he comes in his glorified body um, in all power and, and, and authority. To the prophets, they didn't know there was two different comings, right? To them, they were just looking ahead and seeing this, this event in the future. And it's often been likened to looking at a mountain range, right? That you're seeing from a distance. From a distance, it just looks like one range or, you know, one, one set of mountains. But then as you get closer, you realize, oh, there's actually <laughs> different sets and there's space in between, right? And, of course, we live now in the space in between Christ's first and second coming. And so, that, you know, that's a little tricky sometimes because sometimes those in, when we read prophecies, those things get scrunched together. And so, by and large, most of what we're going to study today in chapters 12 and 13 is accomplished at his first coming. And that's what I'm saying. It's, it's this salvation from our uh, spiritual enemies of, of sin and evil. There may be little shades of things that will be accomplished at his second coming, but but we'll see that by and large next week, Lord willing, in chapter 14. That'll be focusing more on his second coming. Okay? So just hopefully that um, brought more clarity than confusion to you. Um, but just keep in mind, we're, we're focusing on this salvation. The salvation that we have through Jesus Christ. What, what, how was it accomplished? What was the price? What's the results? What's the fruit? What should we be expecting as those who have been saved? All those are uh, topics and issues that will be covered in the text today. So I want to go through chapters 12 and 13 under five simple headings. It'll be real easy to take notes on. Number one is the promise of salvation. Promise of salvation. Verses 1 through 9 of chapter 12 prophesizes, uh, talks about a, a promised Future deliverance by the Lord. You'll see it's talking about some kind of future offensive by the nations against Jerusalem, against the people of God. Yet what we're going to see in these verses is that the Lord promises to protect and preserve his people even though other nations are raging against them. Okay, so let's dive in here in verse 1 of chapter 12. The oracle of the word of the Lord concerning Israel thus declares the Lord who stretched out the heavens and founded the earth and formed the spirit of man within him. Behold, I'm about to make Jerusalem a cup of staggering to all the surrounding peoples. The siege of Jerusalem will also be against Judah. Notice right off the bat in verses 1 and 2, we're hearing a lot of creative language, right? It's emphasizing God's creative powers. He stretched out the heavens. He founded the earth. He formed the spirit. He's going to make and make. It's using this creative language. 
And so it's emphasizing God's creative power, which that makes sense when we talk about not just physical creation, but that when we talk about salvation, because the New Testament uh, describes salvation as a new creation, doesn't it? We are new creations in Christ. And so right off the bat here in verses 1 and 2, it's reminding us who the Lord is. He's the sovereign creator. And as the sovereign creator, the Lord is able to save or recreate his people out of the chaos around them. In other words, he's about to give them some promises and he's telling them, hey, these promises can be trusted. My word can be trusted because I have the power to bring this about. God will save his people And here his people are denoted as Jerusalem. Again, because the prophets are describing this in the terms that they understand, right? In in 500-something B.C. In the process of saving his people, God will make Jerusalem an instrument of judgment on the nations. Did you notice that? He's going to make Jerusalem a cup of staggering. Then verses 3 through 4 speak of God defending Jerusalem from attack. And here's where we start seeing that phrase, on that day, which one commentator said it just is like a, it's like a refrain in this last oracle. It's like a pulse that just keeps pulsating, right? On that day, on that day, looking forward to this promised future salvation. Verse 3, on that day I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all the peoples. All who lift it will surely hurt themselves, and all the nations of the earth will gather against it. On that day, declares the Lord, I will strike every horse with panic and its rider with madness. But for the sake of the house of Judah, I will keep my eyes open when I strike every horse of the peoples with blindness. So you see the nations gather against Jerusalem, but because the Lord is defending his people, what it's saying is Jerusalem is going to be immovable. (laughs) It's going to be like this great stone that they can't budge, they can't move it, they're trying to dislodge it, but they can't, and all they do is they actually hurt themselves in trying to displace it. The Lord strikes the nations that are gathered against Jerusalem with panic and blindness, which interestingly, those are images or phrases that, that come from Deuteronomy 28, describing covenant curses against Israel if they would be unfaithful to the covenant. But here, the covenant curses are afflicting Jerusalem's enemies. Verse 5, Then the clans of Judah shall say to themselves, The inhabitants of Jerusalem have strength through the Lord of hosts, their God. Verse 6, On that day I will make the clans of Judah like a blazing pot in the midst of wood, like a flaming torch among sheaves, and they shall devour to the right and to the left all the surrounding peoples, while Jerusalem shall again be inhabited in its place in Jerusalem. The clans of Judah, those living outside of, of Jerusalem but still within Judah's boundaries, apparently were at first against Jerusalem. But once they saw how the Lord defended Jerusalem from all the attacking nations, the clans of Judah have, have a change of heart in verse 5. They come to their senses and now they're siding with Jerusalem. So in verse 6, God declares that he will make the clans of Judah an agent of destruction against those who come against Jerusalem. Like a blazing pot among wood or a flaming torch among sheaves, they will destroy the nations around them as Jerusalem is restored. And again, think about how this is fulfilled, and we'll, we'll, we'll get to this in more detail in a minute, but just already be picturing spiritually, right? Spiritual battle as the gospel goes forth and as God's people, think about the book of Acts, we saw that last time in the, in the last oracle, as 
God's people start spreading the gospel and how the gospel then is, uh, um, what I want to say, freeing the captives, right? The gospel is going and, and overpowering the spiritual enemies of the cross. Verses 7 through 9 then close out this section and notice that the beginning here and continuing that beginning here in verse 7 and continuing all the way into the next chapter in verse 1, we start hearing a lot about the house of David. House of David, house of David. It's going to be mentioned several times. And so now we're getting some more detail. We, we've talked about how the Lord's going to protect, preserve, deliver his people. Now we see he's going to do that through the promised son of David, through his promised Messiah, King As we've talked about through, we've seen glimpses of this already, right, through our study through Zechariah. I think it was way back in chapter 3, it, started talking, it was talking about the branch of David, right? Uh, Jesus is that promised branch from David's family tree. And again, think of how the New Testament writers describe this. Think of how Matthew in his gospel, which was written primarily to Jews, how right off the bat he says, Jesus, the son of Abraham, the son of David. And then he shows the genealogy to, to show how Jesus, though he is the eternal son of God, he was born of a virgin. He was born into the family line of David. He fulfills God's covenant, that was, that, uh, God's covenant promises given to David that the, the eternal king, the Messiah, would come from David's line. So when we see this house of David in these verses, our ears should, and minds should immediately think, Christ, this is Jesus he's talking about. Okay? Verse 7. And the Lord will give salvation to the tents of Judah first, that the glory of the house of David and the glory of the inhabitants of Jerusalem may not surpass that of Judah. Verse 8. On that day, the Lord will protect the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that the feeblest among them on that day shall be like David, and the house of David shall be like God, like the angel of the Lord going before them. And on that day, I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. Again, God promises to protect the inhabitants of Jerusalem. In fact, even strengthening them. Strengthening the feeblest so that they will be mighty like David. Think about Peter. Think of how he was strengthened by the coming spirit. Right? Denies Christ in front of a servant girl. And then, but once the spirit comes at Pentecost, he's... He's out there proclaiming Christ boldly by God's grace, no matter the cost. God's people will be saved and protected to the glory of the house of David, right? Christ is magnified because it's through his life, death, and resurrection that he saves and secures his people. So, again, to recap, this first section, verses 1 through 9, speak of God saving his people through the Lord Jesus Christ. And the first, you know, he's already done that at his first advent spiritually, right? And though we continue, even as Christians, now to face spiritual enemies, Ephesians 6.12 says, we know that God promises he will preserve us. He will protect us by his grace. He will strengthen us, enabling us by faith to be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might, Ephesians 6.10 says. So again, we can maybe see shades of how this will be, um, could be accomplished physically at the return of Christ. 
But please understand, it's already been accomplished through the first coming of Christ spiritually. Through the salvation that he has achieved, that he has brought for his people. So verses 1 through 9 are really very hopeful, even though they're talking about sieges and all this and that, right? They're very hopeful because they give this promise of salvation. But the mood changes quickly in verse 10. What was a mood of victory and salvation, it turns to bitter weeping as God's people look on the one whom they have pierced in verse 10. And with that, we come to our second heading, the price of salvation. We've seen the promise of salvation, and that's great, but that salvation comes at a cost. What is the price of salvation? Well, we're going to see it's the life and death of our Lord Jesus. Verse 10, And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. That, there's a lot in that verse, and we're going to kind of go over it with a few different uh, pass-throughs, okay? But for now, notice the price of salvation. God's people have been saved. They've been saved by the promise king from the house of David. But this work of salvation has cost the king his life. That's what we see. Jesus saves his people from the wages of their sins. He saves them from eternal death and judgment under God's wrath. How? By dying himself on the cross in the place of his people. 2 Peter 3.18 says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, meaning gave him to die, right? That whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. We are saved, but it costs Jesus his life. Romans 5, 8, but God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The death of Christ purchases salvation for his people. The death of Christ saves them from the wrath that they deserve. The shed blood of Christ redeems them from bondage to sin and death. God's people are saved, praise God. And, but may we never forget, God's people are saved through the suffering and substitutionary death of Christ. We've been bought with the price, the precious blood of Christ. The day of salvation that Zechariah is looking forward to, right, was the day of the death of Jesus on the cross. On the cross, Jesus died to pay for our sins. And think, think to that account that we have in the Gospels. To in, once he had died on the cross, right, he said, it is finished. He yielded up his spirit in victory. What did, what did the soldiers do? Right? It, 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 was, you know, it was about to be a Sabbath, and so they're like, okay, we've got to hurry this thing up, right? And they start going around and breaking the legs of, of others. But when they get to Jesus, they saw he was already dead. But to ensure that he was dead, a Roman soldier pierced his side with a spear while Jesus hung on the cross. And listen to the Apostle John, who was an eyewitness 
describe this account, John 19.32. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. John is talking about himself, right? His testimony is true. He knows that he is telling the truth that you also may believe. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And another scripture says they will look on him whom they have pierced. So the Apostle John quotes this verse right here. Zechariah 12.10. And he says that Jesus is fulfilling this. Because on the cross, Jesus was pierced by the Roman soldier's spear. That day, the Roman soldier and many others watched Jesus suffer and die on the cross. They looked on him whom they have pierced. And what looked like a deserved punishment for blasphemy to the Jews, and what looked like just pathetic weakness to the Gentiles, was actually Jesus powerfully saving his people. It was Jesus paying their sin debt in full, Colossians 2.14 says. It was Jesus there dying on the cross was him saving his people from God's wrath, Romans 5.9 says. It was Jesus reconciling his people to God forever, Romans 5.10. It was Jesus delivering them from the domain of darkness and transferring them to his glorious kingdom, Colossians 1.13. It was Jesus disarming their spiritual enemies and putting them to open shame by triumphing over them, Colossians 2.15. The price of salvation was the sinless life and sacrificial death of Christ on the cross. That was the price. And then, of course, Paul explains, right, in 1 Corinthians 15, that we know um, the resurrection shows that that price was accepted, right? That it was paid in full which is what Jesus yelled out from the cross as well. So we've seen the promise of salvation. And yes, it describes nations raging against, against Jerusalem. And I think about uh, Acts, four, Acts chapter 4, when they're quoting Psalm 2, and they're, they're saying, why, why do the nations rage against, your, your, against the Lord and against his anointed one? Right, The spiritual forces, the enemies, raging against the, the king raging against the truth, raging against the sun. And yet, he comes out victorious by willingly laying down his life on the cross. So we've seen the promise of salvation, the price of salvation. Now let's go back over this verse and the verses following to see our third heading, the proof of salvation. The proof of salvation, verses 10 through 14. Verse 10 again, an important verse. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. God's people have been saved by God's king, but in the process of saving them, the king has been pierced with a mortal blow. And as the rescued People look on their hero, their savior, they mourn. They mourn greatly. They mourn as greatly as one mourns over losing a child. And this mourning is further described 
and given with some context here in verse 11. On that day, the morning in Jerusalem will be as great as the morning for Hadad-Rim in the plain of Megiddo, right? You say, what in the world is that talking about? Well, that's referencing the death of another earlier king who was also a, a godly king in the line of David, was only a man, sinless. I mean, he was a sinner, King Josiah. He died in battle seeking to rescue his people. He died there on the, in Megiddo, Megiddo. Oh, you were just there, weren't you? <laughs> Megiddo, thank you. Yeah. So when King Josiah died, the people mourned. Wow, this was a great king, and he was, he was seeking to do what kings do, protect and deliver his people. And so Zechariah is saying, it's going to be like that. It's gonna, that's kind of like a pattern for what's to come. But it's gonna, the people are going to be mourning even, even greater for their king. Verses 12 through 14 describe the extent of the mourning. The land shall mourn, each family by itself, the family of the house of David by itself and their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Nathan by itself and their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Levi by itself and their wives by themselves, the family of the Shemites by itself and their wives by by themselves, and all the families that are left, each by itself and their wives by themselves. You get the idea? Great mourning is going on here. And you say, well, yeah, of course they mourn. This was their king. Right? They love him, and, and they're grateful to him because he died saving them. Right, So it's, it's appropriate they should mourn. True. And that, that is part of what's happening, but there's more happening here that we need to understand. Mourning here indicates repentance. Repentance. Notice, they will look on the one whom they have pierced. They are responsible for his death. They pierced him because he died paying for their sins. He bore their sins and their punishment on the cross. It's just like we sing in that beautiful song. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. So this morning is more than just gratitude, although it is certainly that. It's also godly sorrow that leads to repentance. This morning is a realization that I have sinned against Almighty God, my loving Creator, my sovereign King, my final Judge. Notice again in verse 10, who is the one they have pierced? You, chart, you start tracking the pronouns there, me, him, him. It shows that, yes, concretely it was the King but metaphorically, it was God himself. And, and you know, even to the, to the um, Jews in the Old Covenant, they would have understood that in a sense. Like, okay, the king in Israel was understood to be an agent of the Lord's rule on earth. So to pierce the king is, in some sense, to pierce God. But we understand it even more fully, don't we? Because that king was God in the flesh. This is the eternal son of God who came and died for us. And it was our sins that resulted in his death. Oh, how we need to understand what sin is. To be saved, we need to, we need to have a godly sorrow that leads to repentance. We need to come to a point in our lives when we realize, I'm a sinner 
before Almighty God. I've committed cosmic treason. I've rebelled against God's authority. I've scorned his love. I've rejected his kindness. I've thumbed my nose at his generous provision in my life. I've fallen very short of his perfect standard. To be saved, we must come to that point of spiritual bankruptcy where we are truly uh, confessing our sin, confessing our need, and, and we're crying out for mercy and, and for salvation. Right? I'm not talking about penance and trying to earn favor. I'm just talking about realizing we're, we're a sinner who needs a Savior and realizing that the gravity of that sin. So the, the people being described here that are saved are doing that. They've come to this realization But yet there's still more in this verse. What has brought about this realization? What has brought about or who has brought about this repentance, this confession of sin and guilt, this grieving over their sin against God, this acknowledgement of their spiritual bankruptcy? Who has brought it about? The Holy Spirit. And if you say, what has brought it about? The regenerating work of the Holy Spirit, the new birth. Look at verse 10. It talks about a spirit of grace. Now, spirit could either refer to a human disposition or to the Holy Spirit, right? And that's why translators have to make a decision. Are we going to capitalize spirit or are we not? ESV doesn't. The NASB does. I think it should be capitalized. I think this is talking about the Holy Spirit, being poured out here because the prophets promise that right they promise that is a, a mark of the new covenant that's a mark of the kingdom that Christ is establishing which is what this oracle is all about <laughs> Isaiah 44 Ezekiel 39 Joel 2 they all talk about how God would send his spirit on the day of salvation Think ahead to Acts 2, right? When the Spirit does come at Pentecost and people are giving evidence of the sign of, of the Spirit, right? And, and all the Jews who are gathered there for the, the, the festival are like, what is going on here, right? And Peter, you know, is filled with the Spirit and preaches and he quotes Joel 2 and says, this is what is happening The Spirit has been poured out on you. And then he talks about Jesus, right, whom you guys rejected. He he died, but he's been risen. And God has made him both Lord and Christ. And by God's grace, what was the result of that preaching? Many were cut to the heart. They were cut to the heart. They were repenting. They were recognizing, we've killed the author of life. We've sinned against God's promised king. We've rejected our final judge. We are in trouble. We are undone. They were cut to the heart. Why? Because the Spirit had come and and opened their eyes. And we know that's what the New Testament teaches. That when when God comes by His Spirit, He gives the new birth... And he replaces our hearts of stone with new hearts. And he gives us that new life in Christ. And it results in us recognizing our sin, repenting of our sin, and in faith calling out to Christ as Savior and Lord. 
Turn with me, please, ahead to Titus chapter 3. Hold your place here in Zechariah 12. Titus chapter 3. Let's look at this quickly. Titus 3, verse 3. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves of various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy. How? By the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly, Through Jesus Christ our Savior. That's the new birth. The risen and exalted Christ had been given all authority. And once he ascended to his throne in heaven. He was given that right, that privilege to send his spirit. And that's what he did. And now the spirit takes the word of God and gives new life. Flip back to Ephesians 2, a familiar passage, right? I won't read the whole thing, but you know it starts off, verse 1, and you were dead in the trespasses in sins. And then it describes that some more. Verse, five, verse 4, excuse me. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And then you skip ahead to verse 8. It says, For by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. You see, it's that spirit of grace that Zechariah 12.10 is talking about. That comes and brings repentance. So the proof or the evidence that a person is saved is new life in Christ. Right? They're a new creation. And and the evidence of new life in Christ is signs of life, fruit of the Spirit. And the first and foundational fruit, alongside love for God, would be repentance for sin and faith in Christ alone for salvation. Do you have that today? This is not something you can answer for anybody else. Do you yourself Are you grieved over your sin? Do you recognize that you're a sinner before Almighty God? Recognize that you don't deserve, we don't deserve to keep living, let alone to be with him forever in heaven. Do you recognize that Jesus came and died so that sinners like you could be forgiven? Have you personally turned from your sins and trusted in Jesus? If you have, praise God, that is signs of of God's grace in your life that he has given you that new birth. And if you haven't, I would urge you just to pray to him, cry out to him, say, Lord, please show me my sin and show me my Savior. So we've seen the promise of salvation, the price, and the proof of salvation. Now, fourth heading as we move into chapter 13, the results of salvation. We'll cover these last two quickly. Verse 1 of chapter 13 shows the result of this piercing. What what did this salvation accomplish that this king has has purchased through his own death? Look at verse 1. On that day there shall be a fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. Oh, what a beautiful picture of the gospel. 
A fountain opened up for the cleansing of sins. Don't you love that word, fountain? It's not a trickle. It's not a pitcher that has a limited amount. Now it's, now it's done. No, it's a continuous fountain. Abundant and ongoing supply for the cleansing of sin. Christ's sacrifice brings cleansing from sin. Ephesians 1.7 In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Colossians 1.13 that we heard earlier. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. Verse 14 In whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Oh, what a blessing to, to be to have experienced that fountain, that fountain of God's grace, that fountain of of Christ's blood, shed blood to cleanse us from our sins. As we sang earlier, there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins, God's with us veins, and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. Don't you just feel like saying hallelujah every time you sing that? We've lost all our guilty stains. Stains of sin that no amount of good works can wash off. Stains of sin that that no amount of of right living can, can, can cleanse. Stains of sin that only Christ can cleanse. And once he cleanses it, it's cleansed. You're you're declared righteous. You're forgiven all your past, present, and future sins because of the powerful. An all-sufficient work of Christ. So individuals are cleansed from their sin, verse 1, and then verses 2 through 6 describe the land itself being cleansed of sin, which for us and now in this dispensation, think of the kingdom of God, right? Verse 2, and on that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will cut off the names of the idols from the land so that they shall be remembered no more. What we're going to see here are two main themes here, idolatry and false prophecy, Okay. So the idols, they shall be remembered no more, and I will also remove from the land the prophets and the spirit of uncleanness. Verse 3, and if anyone again prophesies, his father and mother who bore him will say to him, you shall not live, for you speak lies in the name of the Lord. And his father and mother who bore him shall pierce him uh, through when he prophesies. Verse 4, and on that day every prophet will be ashamed of his vision when he prophesies. He will not put on a hairy cloak in order to deceive, but he will say, I am no prophet, I'm a worker of the soil, for a man sold me in my youth. And if one asks, what are these wounds on your back? He'll say, uh, the wounds I received in the house of my friends. It's just describing idolatry and false prophecy being cleansed from the land. Those were two chief, chief sins that had led to God's judgment and the exile to begin with. But when the Messiah establishes his kingdom, God promises to cleanse these things from among his people. Idolatry will be removed. And instead, God's people, notice, will call on the name of the Lord, we'll see um, at the end of this chapter. False prophecy will be exposed and removed. So much so, what it was describing is the the ones who were false prophets, they're going to pretend like they were never false prophets. They're going to be like, no, no, I'm, I'm just a farmer. I'm just a slave, right? And they're like... I'm not going to put on, uh, what was it, some garment that, to try to look like I'm a prophet. And, and they're like, well, what are those wounds on your back? That, that aren't those the things that you did in all your false prophecy and, and you know, your, your flagellations and things like that? No, 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 no. That's just from me working, uh, uh, working in the field. That's how much it's going to be removed. 
When Christ saves us and makes us new creations, we are cleansed from all of our sins. We're given new hearts that love God. We're set free from bondage to sin. Now, we still battle temptations to sin. We still, there are still idols that tempt us, aren't there? There are still things that seek to displace Christ from the first place in our heart. But the good news, loved ones, is we're no longer in bondage to those sins. We're no longer in bondage to those temptations. By God's grace, the indwelling Spirit of God takes the Word of God and continually exposes sin and idolatry in our lives and leads us to daily repentance of those sins while drawing us back to Christ who is to have the first place in our lives. Right? And that's something I should have mentioned earlier when I talked about repentance. There's that initial repentance in believing in Christ, certainly, and when we're in first saved, but our lives should be characterized by repentance as we deal with sin and as God daily sanctifies us and shows us our sin. So let us be diligent, loved ones, to saturate ourselves with God's word so that we walk in the spirit and in truth, recognizing and rejecting the false teaching and idolatry of this fallen world. Right? There's plenty of false teaching. There's plenty of idolatry in this fallen world. But what this is reminding us is it shouldn't, ha- it shouldn't be in the kingdom of God. Right? Whenever it tries to make inroads, let us weed it out immediately, reject it immediately, call it out for what it is. Last section here then, last heading, the refining of salvation, verses 7 through 9. These last verses are like a short poem within this oracle that once again points us to the sacrifice of Christ, and it also speaks of the adversity that God's people will face as they live as exiles in this fallen world. This is important for us to know, right? It's like, oh great, I've been saved. Everything's going to just be smooth sailing now, right? No, right? It's not, because we live in this fallen world. We're awaiting Christ's return Verse 7, awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who stands next to me, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. I will turn my hand against the little ones. So verse 7 again references the death of the shepherd king, right? The shepherd is struck, causing the sheep to to scatter. You guys know Jesus quotes this on the night of his arrest, applying it to his imminent, imminent death on the cross. And the gospel writers further see the scattering of the flock fulfilled when the disciples then desert him at his arrest. But here what we notice is in verse 7 that the death of the future shepherd king is God's own purpose and design. In verse 7, the Lord commands that a sword be drawn to strike my shepherd, the man who stands next to me. Like Isaiah 53.10 says, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. Like the, like the early church prayed in Acts 4 that I mentioned earlier, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place, they're praying, even as, as they talk about Herod and Pilate and the, the Jews. Though it was according to God's plan, the rejection and murder of the promised king still came at the hands of sinful men. So verse 7 speaks of little ones coming under God's judgment. Specifically, this would apply to the Jews who rejected their Messiah. But we know in every generation, sinful people who by nature reject their creator and shake their fists at their maker declare that we will not have God rule over us. And such rejection of God brings his judgment. And verse 8 shows the extent of, that the extent of this judgment will be devastating. In the whole land, verse 8 declares the Lord, two-thirds shall be cut off and perish and one-third shall be left alive. He's talking about a remnant here, right? Two-thirds of the flock shall be cut off and perish. Two-thirds of those who claimed to be people of God. Two-thirds of those who claimed to be followers of God in that time. It was in name only. 
They're, they're, they rejected God's Messiah. They were cut off. It's the third part that survives, and they'll survive through fire. This is the true church, a remnant that is refined and becomes the remaining people of God. Now, we don't look at this and start trying to say, okay, this is 33%, right? One third, no. It's just showing, it's just, it's just describing a remnant, a, a, a minority. <laughs> That's kind of the main takeaway. It's a minority. And like I said, that third that remains is, will be refined in the fire, verse 9. And I will put this third into the fire and refine them as one refined silver and test them as gold is tested. That's us, guys. That's us, believers. They will call upon my name and I will answer them. I will say they are my people and they will say the Lord is my God. Covenant language. These are true believers. This minority, this remnant is refined through suffering. And they emerge out of the fires of affliction, enjoying the blessings of the covenant and declaring that the Lord is God. And so the New Testament teaches that as Christians awaiting the return of our king now, we should be expecting trials of various kinds, 1 Peter 1.7 says. But that passage also encourages us and promises us that God through this suffering is sanctifying us so that the tested, tested genuineness of our faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's the refining of salvation, loved ones. And I know some of you are going through it right now. But be encouraged. It's part of God's plan. right? And, and it doesn't mean he has abandoned you. It's, he's right there with you. And the fires will not consume you. The water will not overwhelm you. God is doing a good work in you, and he's going to bring you out of that. Maybe it'll be, you know, soon. Maybe it won't be until Christ returns. But he's doing a good work for your good as you depend on him and become more like him and for his glory. So, in conclusion, I'll just go over the headings again. Again, the big, the big picture here is God has kept his promise of salvation by sending his one and only son to earth to rescue his people. So we saw that promise of salvation. We saw the price of salvation as the life and death of our Lord Jesus Christ, a price which God the Father accepted as evidence by raising Jesus from the dead. The proof of salvation, the proof that we've been saved, is new life in Christ evidenced by repentance for our sin and faith in Christ alone for our salvation. The results of salvation is the cleansing of all of our sins and idolatry. And then the refining of our salvation, like I was just saying. We have been saved, past tense, justified, declared righteous. One day we will be ultimately saved, glorified at Christ's return But in the meantime, we're being sanctified daily and increasingly conformed more to the image of Christ, to the praise of his glory. So be be encouraged. God is at work. And again, if there are any here today who are without Christ, please know that you need salvation. We've been talking about salvation in this whole message. You need salvation. This is real. This is eternal. You need saved from the coming wrath of God against your sins. You need to be saved from hell. Do you know that you're saved from hell, teenager? 
You need to be saved from, the bond, from bondage to your sinful passions. And the good news is, the truth is, salvation is found in Christ and Christ alone. Jesus has paid the price. So turn from your sins and by faith embrace Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Then you too can know this cleansing from sin. You, can, you too can know reconciliation to God you too can know promise of eternity with him in glory. Amen. Amen. If I could have the men come forward, please, who are going to serve the Lord's Supper.